Hi, and welcome to the Seacoast Vineyard Church Podcast. We want to thank you for joining us online and remind you to feel free to visit our website at seacoastvineyard.com anytime for up-to-date information on our local church here in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. If you would like to give financially to this ministry, whether that's a one-time gift or a recurring monthly gift, simply click on the Give tab at our website and give however God leads you. Now, we want you to enjoy this message from God's Word. We're finishing up a series this morning that, uh, like Brian said, is called The Beloved Community. And we've been in this for four weeks now and uh, taking a look at God's beloved community. I got this title from uh, Martin Luther King when he was speaking to his church. He called it The Beloved Community. And I thought, wow, what a beautiful a description of the church or what it should be and what it is to God, of course, is His beloved community here on the earth. And uh, so we have been for four weeks taking a look at what that beloved community should look like locally. I mean, we can talk about it all over the world. We can talk about what it looks like universally and we can talk about what it looks like eternally. But it really doesn't work uh, until we bring it right home to where we live and how we do life together as a local church. And so it's good every now and then for us to take a look at that and, and uh, to see if we're, if we're hitting uh, the ball, you know, getting, getting uh, some contact on the ball here in the way that we do things around the church. I do want to pray. Usually I pray after I read the scripture this morning, but I want to pray up front since this is a, a new launching with a, an extra service. I want to pray for first for you and uh, pray for the story that is sitting in your seat, the story that you have, your life, the way God has been faithful to you and wooing you and loving you up to this point in time and that God has got you here at this time, which I think is important, an important time in your life and in for the church since you're here. So I want to pray for you guys uh, because you are the biggest, you know, the biggest change you'll probably see in your life is, you know, the catalyst for change in your life is sitting in your seat right now. You, you know, the biggest change that any any change that's going to come is probably going to come through you for your life, and so it's really important. You're really important. You're important to what God does in your life, and also the friends and family and people that you know, and people that uh, come in contact with you. And then I also want to pray for these seats that we've got in this auditorium that we opened up for uh, new people. As uh, Brian said, the six pack card. You can take those those cards out and give them out, and uh, we want to touch more people. For Christ, we believe there are more people who need to hang out with you. They need to be around you because if they can hang out with you for a little bit, maybe they'll see Jesus in you and maybe they'll say, wow, maybe there is something to this deal that Jesus does change lives, that he does come and make a difference in lives. And so all of these, the vacant seats, I get excited about because I know that those are opened up for people that Jesus loves and he cares about. And so we want to pray for those people who aren't even here yet. And you've heard me say this before, the church is probably the only uh, organization that exists for the sake of those who aren't even a part of it yet. I mean, that's, we, we are on mission. We are a missional people. We don't just camp out. We, we have a purpose for existing. And, and part of that purpose, a huge part of that purpose is for the people that aren't even a part of us yet. And so uh, if you would pray with me and as we launch this morning's service, Father, thank you so much for your goodness to us. Thank you for this day, this opportunity to hear your word. 
I thank you for each person seated in these seats today that are here in this service, Lord. Each person represents your story. If we could see each person's story today, we would see your hand in their life. We would see your guiding, your faithfulness. Yes, we might see some pain. We might see struggle. But Lord, we would still see your faithfulness, the fact that they are here and they're here right now. And so I pray for those stories, the lives that are, that are here, that, Lord, you would once again remind each person, each of us, of your grand design and your love for us and that you're indeed working in us and through us and, and that the work's not done yet. You're still doing it, God. And we pray for the vacant seats here. We pray for those who are not among us yet but who are waiting to be invited, those who are waiting to come in through an invitation or, or some uh, outreach, or maybe they just wander in here on a Sunday morning. We pray for them, Lord, that indeed you would call many people to yourself and you would reveal yourself to them, Father. And we thank you for new beginnings, new opportunities. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you got your Bible, if you turn over to Romans, that's in the New Testament. Romans, the 14th chapter, verse 13. We've been using Romans as our kind of launch pad for all of our, for this recent series. The book of Romans, written by a guy named Paul. Paul has been uh, doing this preaching thing for about 25 years now, whenever we get to the book of Romans. For 25 years, he has given his life to this message, the message of Jesus Christ, that Jesus has come to earth, uh, that he is God incarnate, that he is 100% God, 100% man, and he has come on a mission to reconcile the Father's creation back to himself. Now, Paul wasn't always like this. Paul didn't always believe like this. Paul was a very faithful and zealous Jewish leader in his day. He was so zealous that uh, when the Christian deal broke onto the scene when, when uh, Pentecost happened and the Christians began to disperse across the area. People began to preach Jesus and they began to talk about this Jesus. Paul was very upset as a good Jew and actually went out to kill the Christians. He went out to stop this movement of Christianity. He had the legal right to do it. He was sent out with it. And so, Paul, when you read something that Paul wrote, it's good to remember he wasn't always the way he was or the way he is in this book. Like him loving the church in Rome. At one time he was trying to hunt down these Christians and kill them off. I mean, what kind of God reaches a guy like that, huh? Changes a life, takes a person who hated Christianity and turns them into probably the best representation during this period of time and gave us the most writing as far as how to do this Christian life of anyone. That's the kind of God that we serve. That's the kind of Jesus that has come into so many of our lives. And so Paul's been doing this about 25 years. He's planted churches all over the Mediterranean. He's gone on maybe three different missionary journeys. He's always wanted to go to Rome because Rome is the epicenter of political power and of culture. And, and so he wants to get there. He wants to visit the Christians that are gathering there in Rome. He hasn't made it yet, but his plans are to go there, so he's sending this letter uh, to the Roman Christians in preparation of his coming soon. 
he wants to go to Rome, and then from there he wants them to help him go to Spain and to preach the gospel in Spain and plant churches in Spain. Paul is a man on the move. And, uh, but there are problems at the church in Rome. Imagine a church with problems. Imagine a church that has problems getting along with itself. Sometimes we think that, hey, gosh, I just wish it was like the first century. It was just like the first century, everybody would get along. Not really. I mean, as long as there's people, and as long as people are trying to make their way through this thing called living life and following Jesus, there are going to be situations where we have to work through issues. And the church in Rome was no different. They had problems there. At first, the church was probably made up of Jewish believers, Jewish Christians. And even some of them would bring in some of their practices, uh, like circumcision, some of the... They call them Judaizers. People would come into the church and they would go, for you to be a good Christian man, you would have to be circumcised. And Paul would come along and go say, no, that's not true anymore in Christ because our heart has been circumcised. God has made us his own through Jesus Christ. There's no need for that type of thing anymore. And then the Gentiles, that's the non-Jewish people that were becoming, uh, starting to follow Jesus, they began to flood into the church and they flooded into the Roman church. And with them, they were coming out of pagan practices where they worshipped idols and uh, they would even take their, the food and they would dedicate it to idols and worship the food and, and the wine. They would pour wine out on their altars and worship to, to pagan gods. And so they were bringing in all kind of manner of things too. And some of these young Christians wanted to take those practices and bring them right into the church and say, hey, you can't be a good Christian unless you not, if you, you know, you can't eat meat and be a good Christian. Now, this isn't against vegans. I told you this last week. Okay, this has everything to do, this has everything to do with a spiritual component of people coming out of a pagan practice. And so they would bring this into the church and cause problems. Oh, you can't drink wine because wine was used in the worship of of a pagan god and, and you shouldn't be doing that in a Christian church as far as drinking wine or, or having wine. And so Paul is dealing with all of these different uh, opinions and supposed doctrines. It's really not about the right and the wrong of drinking wine or eating meat. It was about Christians judging one another. Imagine that. Can you conceive of such? I mean... An actual Christian looking at another Christian and doubting their spirituality and accusing, can, it's just profound to even imagine that. And so Paul is dealing with this. He's like, no, you're judging one another. This is the issue. What did Christ come to do for his church and how should his church, how should they live together? How should they do life together? And so we're looking at the beloved community. Last week we said that there's such a thing as dogma and that is there are some beliefs that we, if, we, if we're going to be Christians and we call ourselves Christians, we must believe. And those, that dogma is not up for debate like Jesus Christ being 100% human, 100% man, and 100% God. Okay, that is not up for debate. You can't be a Christian and not believe those things. Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. He was 100% sinless. He lived his life here as a human being never having sinned. Not one time. You can't be a Christian and not believe that. He lived his life pure and holy before God here on the earth and then he was murdered and killed and sacrificed for our sins. 
He went to the cross for our sins. He took our sins on himself. You can't be a Christian and not believe that. Those are, that's dogma. That's necessary belief. He was killed and put in the grave for three days. Dead and buried. And then he rose out of the grave on the third day. You can't be a Christian and not believe that. That is necessary. That is life-giving dogma. Something that must be believed to be a Christian. And then he spent about a month or so here hanging out with his best friends, sharing with them, and he went back to be with the Father. And where he sits at the right hand of God the Father, and it says making intercession or talking to the Father about you. Did you know that? Doesn't that do something to you to know that Jesus Christ has your name on his lips speaking to the Father about you right now, this morning? Those are all necessary. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Trinity that make up the Godhead, necessary dogma. But then we add to that doctrine. Doctrine are what makes the Methodist the Methodist, the Baptist the Baptist, vineyard, vineyard, and Lutheran, Lutheran, and there, there are certain uh, things that we hold close, practices and, and praxis, the way we live out our faith, there are certain things that we hold dear. But that doctrine does not delineate whether we're Christians or not. The dogma does, but not the doctrine, right? And so we usually, we argue over doctrine many times. And then there's opinions. So we have dogma, doctrine, and opinions. Opinions are like what style of worship you want. Some, uh, maybe even the way you dress. I had a person thank me in the first service today because they go to a church where you have to wear a dress on Sunday mornings. And they didn't have one, and so they came to our church this morning in slacks. I'm like, thank you for the freedom in this church. I was able to come this morning. I know, hard to believe, right? True, still happens, still there. But we get in trouble and we have problems when we hit the doctrine and we hit the opinions. And so Paul is dealing with this and dealing with some opinions and doctrine here in this church in Rome. And I think we can learn some things from it this morning. So let's read Romans 14, verse 13. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. We could stop there, couldn't we? I mean, I'd be like, okay, that's good. Let's go home. All right. Well, if we just did that right now, we'd all like, whoop. I had uh, posted this text on my Facebook page this morning early, and a buddy of mine, who a surfing friend I've known for a long time, I don't know whether he's a follower of Jesus yet or not, but uh, he had posted back, Tim, you could have stopped with that one line right there. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. But Paul goes on to say, instead, instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it is unclean. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Edification is a fancy word for building one another up, 
kind of encouraging one another. Let's make every effort to build one another up, encourage one another. And I lost my place. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. (laughs) Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. The four things I want to point out this morning. And the first one, you have a fill-in in your handout if you want to track along with me and a pen. Your first fill-in is this. Paul says, make up your mind. Make up your mind. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. You know, it takes a church making a decision that they don't want to cause others to stumble. And it takes a church deciding how are we going to reach out to other people? How are we going to throw the welcome mat out? It's an individual decision in our church that each of us go, I'm going to do everything I can to be welcoming to someone. And if I can remove a stumbling block away from that person seeing Jesus, then I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to take my life and submit it to Christ in such a way that I throw a big welcome mat out to the people that need to see Jesus. And you know, this is tough because offending people, look, if you can be offended, you will. Just saying. I mean, you will. If you can be offended, you're going to be offended. And in all honesty, the more mature you get in Christ, the less you are offended in life. Because most of the time we are offended because something is maybe threatened in us. Something, uh, we start getting uncomfortable because someone maybe believes a little different than us. I never understood that about church people. Why we get so angry. And why we get so offensive whenever somebody has a difference of opinion. I mean, if you believe it, what do you feel like? What do you, why get so defensive? And then attack somebody. There's no reason. We have to make up our mind that we're going to do whatever we can to remove any obstacle or stumbling block so that others can see Jesus. And the church has to do that together. I mean, it's difficult trying to build a church that's multi-generational, multi-ethnic, just trying to do life together. The reason I want to see a church like that is because I have read the end of this book. You guys ever read the end of it? Some of you are like, dude, I can't get through the first two. I'm like, over here. Okay, it's okay in this book to skip ahead. <laughs> you know how you read novels and you're like, man, I really want to know how this thing ends. I really want to know how it ends. And so you don't you make sure nobody's watching. You flip over to the last chapter. It's okay in this book to do that. It's okay to take a look at how all of this is going to come down in the end. Because in the end... The Bible says every tribe, every tongue, every nation. There will be people from every type of culture all over the world down through all the ages who will be standing before before God one day. We will be with them worshiping God together. Every tribe, every nation. When the day of Pentecost, when it came and that fulfillment of that Joel passage came, 
And they said that the sons and the daughters are prophesying. That is, the young and the old were beginning to preach the gospel and prophesy. The old men, seeing, you know, having dreams and seeing visions, young men seeing visions and, and just, you know, it, what he painted was this multi-generational kingdom. And it's tough when you take different age groups and you take different cultural groups and you try to pull them together. It means that everybody has to give up something. Everybody has to be able to honor one another. And we have to make our mind up that that's something worth us going after. Are we willing to do that? I have a friend who's planning a church, a young, wonderful young couple, and they're starting a new church. They've been going a couple of years. And, you know, he called me this past week and he was just so sad because he had uh, an older couple in his church who bailed out on him because they said, well, it's just no, there's no old people here. And he's like, I don't have anybody to relate to. And I'm like, well, how do you think more old people are going to come? You know, how are they going to come if you don't hang out and you don't stick it out? Is a representation of the kingdom of God, of what God wants, is it worth making your mind up that I'm going to stick it out and invite others and be around people who are maybe a little different, praise God, than us? I mean, the creativity of God is amazing. You can just rejoice even more so when you see what God has been, is doing in different people's lives and cultures. And I mean, that's the beauty. If we can't do it together here, what makes us think we're going to do it in heaven? I think some of us think we're going to, you know, well, I know I'm prejudiced now, but God will deal with it by the time I get to heaven. Really? I know I don't have a great attitude now, but when I get to heaven, God's going to change that. What if you go into heaven a crabby man or a crabby person what if you don't what if you go into heaven and you're just like you are or maybe God is dealing with us right now and in the church this is the place where we work this stuff out maybe that's where we should be maybe this is the time for us to learn to love one another and we make our mind up that we're going to extend our arms our hands our understanding to one another and we're going to be that group of people who live out this thing at the end of the book. But it's not easy, and it takes a group of people deciding to do it. I mean, the common denominator in the church of Jesus Christ shouldn't be the age of the people in the church. The common denominator in the church of Jesus Christ in the local church shouldn't be the music they play that they like. The common denominator in the local church is Jesus that's what keeps us together. He is our Lord and our Savior. And we love Him. And we gather into Him. And that is the number one thing in our life. That is the dogma in our, our lives that we go back to time and again. But the doctrine and the opinions, we are willing to listen to one another. To even honor one another sometimes in our differences. But we have to make our mind up. You know, I bet if you look back in your life, if you're a follower of Christ, you'll see that God put somebody different than yourself in your life at some time to show you the love of God. Back when I first came, uh, became a Christian, some of you know this story. I, you know, I didn't look like, I did not look like the normal Baptist parishioner. All right? I did not look like the normal Baptist parishioner. I didn't. Karen took me to her church. We'd been married about three years by that time, two, three years. And we walked into church. And I don't know what. I just didn't feel welcome. I don't know what it was. I you know, we, we walked in. I mean, I loved Jesus. I was just 
wanted to reach my friends for Christ. I walked into that place and, you know, we stayed in that church and a, a guy eventually came over, an older man, probably 42. Um, <laughs> he was really old. He was really old, came over to me and threw his arms around me one Sunday morning and just embraced me. And then he said, you know, the first time you walked in this church, I wanted to run over and just lay into you. So I just wanted to just, I thought, what is he doing in this church? Well, I was there because I love Jesus. That's why I was there. But he says, the Lord spoke to me that you are my brother in Christ and that I was to come over and find out what God was doing in you. And put, put uh, this is Art and Janie Chadwick. Art's 82 years old now. And Art pulled me alongside himself. He took me to every country church in this county, had me give my testimony. When I was too shy to play my guitar in church, he would put his foot in my back and force me out on the stage to play. We were from two different worlds. But you know what? He made his mind up to come alongside a young man who was just trying to find a way to follow Jesus. And the question for us, church, is are we willing to do the same thing? Are we willing to let God use us with people who are so different than ourselves to come alongside and support and love them? It will not happen if we don't make our mind up to do that. John R. Stott, the famous theologian, preacher, said this about the passage of Scripture we're looking at this morning. He said, this is, the, this is the world that is being described. In it, the weak and the strong disappear from view. Jewish and Gentile believers take their place, and this reconciled multi-ethnic community is heard with one heart and mouth in glorious gospel harmony, worshiping the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, man. Man, what a testimony. But it won't happen unless we make our mind up to do that. Secondly, in verse 17 through 18, uh, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Your second fill-in is we need to make it a matter of the kingdom. Now, when I say kingdom, I realize some of you guys in church, I know, you go, what in the world? What is a kingdom? We don't have kingdoms in America. Uh, I, I understand that. But Jesus used this term during his time on earth to represent when God gets what he wants. So when you see the kingdom of God and you're reading your Bible and you go, ah, crazy, weird stuff, what is that English stuff, what, kingdom, Middle Eastern stuff, it simply means this. Here's your definition for the kingdom of God anytime you see it, okay? It is where God gets what he wants. The kingdom is where God gets what he wants. Anytime God gets what he wants, the kingdom has come. The rule and the reign of God has come. Anytime God gets what he wants. That's why you guys that are married, you're having a problem, you're fussing and you're fighting. What a wonderful thing to do to stop and go, I just wonder what God wants here. What does he want right now? Jesus taught us to pray what? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. On the earth. In other words, you get your way here on the earth just like you get your way in heaven. 
In any situation, we followers of Jesus need to pray that and think that. You're in business. You've got a situation. You've got to make some kind of decision. You stop and you pray, Lord, what would this look like if you got your way? What's the next step that I should take so that you get your way in this? You're a student struggling with the future. You don't know what to do, where to go. Uh, You've got so many choices ahead of you. Stop. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Make it a matter of the kingdom. And when we have our differences in the local church, what a wonderful thing to do to look at each other and go, I wonder what God wants here. What would it look like if God got his way? Right now, in this discussion with one another, what would it look like? And then together to pray your kingdom, your rule, your reign, where you get your way, God, may it come right now. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy to work it out, okay? But it does mean we submit ourselves to what God wants. So we're, all of us are going, okay, God, just show us what you want. Come. You know, that's why we still pray for the sick in this church. Is because we know that in heaven where God rules and reigns and when he gets his way completely, there are no sick people in heaven. Everyone is going to be healed. Everyone. There's not going to be any sick people in heaven. And so we pray for the sick. Lord, this is what you would, this is the way you're going to want it in the kingdom to come. So you told us to pray on the earth now as it is in heaven. So now, Lord, we pray. Have your way now and heal this person. There won't be any hungry people in heaven. That's why we feed people. Every time we see a hungry person satisfied who finally gets food, we've seen the kingdom come. Because God satisfies our hunger. Every time we give a cup of cold water to someone who is thirsty and doesn't have clean water, we see the kingdom come. Because there's not going to be any thirst in heaven. Not any thirst when God brings his kingdom to the earth in fullness. Every tribe, every tongue. The kingdom. Make it a matter of the kingdom. And in this church, what a great thing for us to do as we march on now and we keep reaching out to our community and planting churches and trying to see it reach more people for us to act when we hit these little impasses and we hit a point where we've got to deal with each other. What would God want? Make the kingdom one of the primary things where God gets his way. What would it look like right now if God got his way? What would it look like? And then to pray. He says that it's you know, righteousness, peace, and joy, that that's the way the kingdom looks. That's what the kingdom is made up of, righteousness, peace, and joy. Righteousness here means right living, and that is we learn to live with each other in a right way, in right relationship with Him, with Christ, and with one another. Does that sound good to you? I mean, that sounds really good to me, living in right relationship and in a right way, right living. And then there's peace, and this peace means peace with one another and with God. What a great place to be, to come into church and be at peace with one another and with God. And then what comes out of that? Joy. People smile and they laugh and they enjoy serving God and following God together. There's joy in it. I got an email this past week from someone who uh, visited our church. And uh, they, they're from up north, but they, uh, they visited a lot of churches. And it was the most wonderful email because they said, the minute we walked in your church, we felt like we had been going to it for years. There was such a 
a welcome, and there was such a joy in the people. And we just wanted to say thank you, Tim, and thanks to the vineyard in Myrtle Beach for throwing the welcome mat out. That's the sign of the kingdom. Righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. Not our own, but in the Holy Spirit. His presence brings that. Now, we're launching small groups today. 26 small groups are going to be offered. You know, that's where we get to practice the kingdom of God many times with one another. And so if you're not in a small group, go by or the table, or I guess you have one of the brochures with you, but find a small group to be a part of. Or maybe you want to lead one in the future. Talk to Pastor Rick about that and uh, get involved and so that we can't really see the kingdom come unless we're with one another. I mean, we want to do this thing together. Thirdly, in verse 19, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Make every effort, he says. Paul says, look, Make up your mind. Remember it's about the kingdom and then make every effort to see that it happens. We have to be intentional in this. It literally means let us then pursue everything that will help us build one another up and that leads to peace. Make every effort to do it. Another uh, definition for the way this Greek is phrased is it means to welcome into one's fellowship and into one's heart, not just into the building. It's you getting to know someone, maybe going to a small group and getting to know people who aren't like you. It means welcoming them into your heart. When I started this morning, I said, everybody, everybody has a story. You would be blessed to hear other people's stories. You would be blessed to hear how God has pursued them through their life and what He's doing in their life right now. And that way we welcome people into our hearts. Man, you get, you get a few hundred people that live like that and come together. Man, this place will change. We can change our communities. We can change the Grand Strand. We can see a different spirit come to our neighborhoods as we do the same in our neighborhoods to our friends and neighbors and all. Make every effort. It implies the warmth and kindness of genuine love. And some of us, that means we have to lay down some things. You know, well, let me just, Proverbs 16, 32 says that better a patient man than a warrior. <laughs> you may be strong and you may be right, but a patient man is even better. Better a patient man than a warrior, a man who controls his temper than one who takes a city. That is like strength through restraint. Those of us who are more mature Christians, we should hold our tongue sometimes. You can really tell how mature you are by how much your mouth opens <laughs> many times. Especially in response to maybe younger Christians or people who are not quite there yet and maybe have some ideas you don't agree with. And... Paul is basically saying, you stronger Christians, show that you're a more mature Christian by restraining the way you talk to those who are weaker. You know, it takes more strength to bite your tongue than to set it free. <laughs> it takes a lot more strength to hold your tongue than to just let whatever you're thinking go. 
And we have to make an effort to do that, don't we? You're, you know, and it's like a, it's an opinion you have, or maybe it's a pet doctrine you have. You know, I'm really going to straighten them out. You know, show some restraint, show some strength. I mean, we see things sometimes, and for Paul, it was the food and the wine that was, you know, that was being uh, fussed at and about. And even Jesus said over Matthew 15, he said, listen and understand, what goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean. But what comes out of his mouth, that is what makes him unclean. So suddenly our tongue will... You know, it's not what someone is drinking or what someone is eating that's unclean, but it's what we say and what comes out of our heart and out of our mouth that is unclean. And so as a church that wants to make every effort to build up, every effort to see the peace of God come, then we are intentional in how we respond to people. You know, I know this is tough. Like I said, if you can be offended, you will. And there will be people who you do everything you can to try to love them. They'll still get offended at the time. I was thinking of stories, um, you know, things that happened with us. And back many, many years ago, I had been sharing Christ with this ex-motorcycle gang guy. This guy was a rough guy. He was an alcoholic, carried a ball-peen hammer on the side of his bike. So if you pulled up by him and you were too close, you were going to know you were too close. That ball-peen hammer would come out and he would hit the side of your car. And uh, he was a rough dude. But I don't know why God put him on my heart, but I just... I just did everything I could to try to share Christ with him. And then one more, one thirty in the morning, I hear this raging, yelling maniac outside our house one night. And it's this guy. And he is so upset with me because somehow he found out that on our anniversary, we had a glass of champagne. And he was totally, he was just mad, very mad because he was an alcoholic. He couldn't have one drink, not one. And so, I mean, he's accusing me of being a false prophet and, I mean, all of this kind of stuff. So we bring him in the house. Karen, the kids are real small but this time. We bring him in the house. We made a pot of coffee. We fed him the coffee and we sat down and we talked about it. You know, sometimes you're going to have these issues where you just have to walk through it with one another and love one another enough. Who is going to be the strong and mature person in these, in these times? Who's going to show the love of God. Who is going to do it, you know, and, and make the effort, the extra effort. So we make our minds up to be considerate of one another. It's about the kingdom where God gets his, you know, what he wants. And we want to be intentional. We want to make an effort to see this thing work. And lastly, verse 22, so whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. You know, it's okay to make some things a private matter. I mean, even Paul says that. Keep it between yourself and God. And he's talking here many about the, you know, the wine that the, some of them were mad about because it was okay to drink wine. You know that legalist, legalism, you know that Paul is describing when, when you're a legalist, you're the weak person. You know that, right? That's what he's saying. Legalism is being weak, not strong in the faith. When you're so legalistic, you have to put it on everybody else. And they have to act and behave the way you behave. That, like, you can't drink wine because wine was used in the worship of idols. And Paul comes along and goes, that's a weaker brother, but you should love them enough that if you don't need to drink wine around them because it offends them. But that's a weaker brother. Maybe they'll get stronger eventually. But while you're around them, don't do it. 
because it causes them to stumble. You should be willing to forego that in order to help your weaker brother. Some things need to remain a private matter. uh, Donald Barnhouse, who was a great theologian, his, uh, the first commentaries I own, he wrote them. And uh, back in, I guess he lived between the 30s to the 60s, I guess, and a uh, great preacher. And he was preaching at, a, at his church one Sunday, and he had these ladies. This is back in the, I guess, 50s or 40s, whenever. He had some ladies approach him after church. And these ladies came up to him and told him that they were very concerned for the younger women in the church, that uh, they were going astray. And uh, that he needed to do something about it. And he asked, what, why would they say that? And they said, because they're not wearing hose anymore to church. They did not wear hose. And proper women, if they respect God and respect the church, would wear hose to church. So Dr. Barnhouse looked at them and said, do you know where wearing hose comes from? And they said, certainly not. It's just proper. And he said, well, in the 15th century, prostitutes started wearing hose so that people would know they were prostitutes. Now, that was something they should have kept between them and God. You know, that's what it takes. If that's what it takes for them to feel close to God, that's great. Because Paul said, if that's a sin for you, it's a sin. Okay, keep wearing your hose. Okay, if you feel closer to God, keep wearing them. Keep wearing them. Some things we just don't need to put on other people at times. There's a famous preacher, D.L. Moody, a wonderful man of God who lived back in the mid to late 1800s. And uh, D.L. Moody, Moody Bible Institute, the Moody Broadcast, all of this, uh, D.L.'s on the left side there. D.L. Moody, great man of God. I mean, if you read his story, it's just unbelievable. Touched hundreds of thousands of people, uh, and then the guy on the right is a famous preacher named Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon, probably the most famous preacher who ever lived. Actually, back in the 1800s, it said that he preached to more than 10 million people. And this was before PA systems and all of this kind of stuff. Uh, he was a pastor. Spurgeon was a pastor in London. Moody was a pastor in Chicago. D.L. Moody always wanted to meet Spurgeon. And so one day he, find, he did get to meet his hero. He got to go to London, England, and he got to meet Charles Spurgeon. He walked into Spurgeon's office, and Spurgeon was sitting at his desk smoking a cigar. And Moody looked at him and went, How could you, a man of God, be smoking a cigar? And Spurgeon looked back at Moody and said, How can you, a man of God, be so fat? These two men ended up being best of friends. (laughs) Best of friends. And Spurgeon kept on smoking his cigars. And Moody just kept getting fatter. (laughs) (laughs) There are some things. There are some things we just don't have to put on other people. There are more important things. Like the main thing. The main thing of Jesus Christ. And his love for his people. His love for his world. We just don't trust the Holy Spirit to change people. We think we have to get in there and do it. Let's have some faith that He loves His people, that He is able to conform us to His own image.
And let's make a decision that we are going to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. I thought about, wonder what Paul felt like the first time somebody walked up to him and handed him a ham sandwich. Good Jewish man, knowing that he was free, looking at that ham sandwich. Knowing that he was not under the law anymore, but he could enjoy a little pork now, you know. Let's make the main thing the main thing. And let's see his beloved community become just that to our community. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast from Seacoast Vineyard Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. We look forward to you joining us next time on iTunes or at our website, www.seacoastvineyard.com.